They're bad. They're boys. And occasionally, they talk about running. Yes, it's the Bad Boy Running Podcast with your hosts, Jody Rainsford and David Heller. Come back. Hello, everybody. Hello, JD Rainsford. How are you doing? Well, uh, Bad Boy Running Podcast, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> I'm all right, David Hellard at Bad Boy Running Podcast. We've um, decided, we spoke last week, and as in everything that we decide, we then immediately don't do it and never do it again. We decided last week, we were like, would it be good if we actually give a little kind of teaser to the interview coming up on each episode oh yes do it do it give a teaser firstly i've got to remember who who we're interviewing <laughs> maybe that's oh. a good maybe that's good david who are we interviewing again as long as you don't ask me this question it'll work out perfectly <laughs> well to, in the past we've we've recorded intros and we've recorded interviews and they've never necessarily been aligned until weeks and weeks later where we've just suddenly went i know why do we do an intro from three months ago and pair it with an interview we've done just tonight great idea whereas now we're in the we've, we've finally after five years got to the point of realizing we can do the interviews first and then intro them at any point in the future and <laughs> pretend it's this week Apart from if they're talking, go yeah. Oh, now it's Christmas. Uh, <laughs> that's the that's the only issue. Indeed. Although, if you're new this, well, a bit of an insight. What ha- often happens is we'll we'll film some, we'll, we'll interview someone topically, and then we'll be like, oh crap, we still got seven interviews to go before we get to them, and we'll suddenly have to push it through. And we may have interviewed them with the trying to be clever and thinking we won't make this topical so it doesn't it's not a perfect system but tonight tonight this today is this morning tenet. this is like, <laughs> like what this is christopher nolan has brought you this this episode like what we're going to do is on the other side of the interview we're going to play this intro in reverse so you just don't know what's going on like david who are you interviewing later well i wish at the end of the interview I could be as free as this person that I didn't I saw the back of, but I wasn't sure who it was. But maybe at the end of the interview I'll find out it was me all along. <laughs> You've interviewed yourself possibly. If you haven't seen Tenet, that will make no sense. But that is what Tenet Even if is. If you have seen Don't... Tenet, that'll still make no sense. <laughs> but we have got well, basically we've got the amazing Chris Holton coming up and this, if you don't know Chris, you're not a member of the group and you haven't been to Love Trails or Project Awesome or to most Do Better events. He, that, he's that's one most of most people then. <laughs> that's most people. <laughs> so so he, if you're part of the majority. He's, he's one of the Do Badders that actually has some kind of qualification. And we, we put the post out that we're going to be interviewing him. And we probably have more questions than any other guest because he is the master of the brain which means he's the master of pain, the master of sleep, the master of anything else you could throw in there. Crosswords. Crosswords. Oh, my word. He did the whole interview whilst doing the, which one's the hard one? The Times and the Telegraph simultaneously. This is how good he is. In Japanese. In Japanese. 
So um, that is coming up. He, in fact, he doesn't mind you calling it him at any period of the day, midnight, like one <laughs> to ask him any question and he will answer it with the correct answer. Yeah, especially this is this is a lot of talk to do with sleep. And so um, the good thing is if you wake him up all the time, he knows how to deal with it so he can handle it. <laughs> <laughs> His number is 07. <laughs> Sleep is very in at the moment. It's a weird thing to be saying. It's like saying eating is very in at the moment. Although our discussion will go on to how eating isn't in in a minute as well. <laughs> Although I've got a count. Well, we're getting, well, we've got some we've got some good chat coming up for you today, which is quite unusual for us. Um, but before we do that, are we are we going to do a how are you? Because I've got nothing to say about how I am. I was going to say congratulations and celebrations to trick a judging panel how how did you do it <laughs> they do that is if you if you've not heard the the great news athene bullet won the editor's choice of women's running magazine for race nutrition whoop, whoop, whoop. well congratulations which is insane. Um, but then also um, a little bit, I'm thinking when they have a, a panel of judges and you have to send off your product to those judges. And um, for one, I sent them a lot of products. I was thinking, yeah, <laughs> let's make them think, hey, what a great person. But also one of the judges was Chrissy Wellington. Haven't we interviewed half of the judges? Like, uh, don't, don't you like personally know half the judges? Well, that was the trouble. Whereas I, I thought, I'm gonna. Do, do I mention this to Chrissy? Do I put a like a? Uh, well, do I to, do, do what that you? you that I know that she's one of the judges. The interview. But <laughs> surely but, she'll know she's one of the judges. What? What? Do, do I, but in, do I acknowledge the fact that I know she's a judge and we know each other when I send her the product? Oh, you absolutely. That's what you should have done. Did you not do that? Well, I I got our, our lovely man Andrew to send out um, to send them to her, and he'd have just sent the normal flyer in there, which would have had my big fat face on it. So oh, that's, um, right. that's like it's like a welcome from you. So so, so listen, let's, let's, let's dig into this a little bit. So what's it called? Judges' choice. Was it editor's choice? Judges' Edit choice. Editor's, editor's choice. Editor's choice. Editor's so, choice. So firstly, it means you didn't win the popular vote. <laughs> No, there's no popular vote. There's oh, there just, not? there is, it, it's, they take it to the panel and then that determines who they think is best. But I think the editor's choice is almost like the like one the, that... The electoral college. It's like the electoral college. <laughs> <laughs> but it's the reverse. It's the unelectoral college. It's the one where my interpretation of it is this doesn't necessarily meet all of the exact criteria. Um, but, a lot of nutrition. <laughs> but people loved it. So I imagine because we, we shouldn't really win race nutrition. And, and actually the winner was precision hydration, which which it's uh, <laughs> who was a friend of the show. But um, to me, race nutrition really needs to be the main thing. Like it should always be a gel, I assume, or uh, shop blocks or something like that, as opposed to we're kind of a, a supplement. Cherry tomatoes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Wait, Salt. Wait, wait. So, oh, so you're 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 saying that there should be another category 
Um, we like a wild card. A wild, we I like. Suppose that's it. That's with the boosters rather than the fuel. Yeah, yeah. The um, it's an it's an interesting one. Uh, and, and what does that does that <laughs> does that mean? Um, the uh, media sales uh, from uh, women's running are phoning you up now, uh, trying to get you to advertise. Yeah, 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 are quite they? a bit. Are they really? <laughs> emails, emails. They haven't got Amazing. my number. Emails, emails. <laughs> oh God, I've worked on enough magazines to know that when you run an award, you're like, yeah, I think we've got a good chance of getting these guys on board as advertisers. <laughs> <laughs> Don't need to. So, I'm, so that it does so, make so, me wonder. So you, you're not hanging on to that award next year, then? That's the <laughs> so that's what I was wondering. Is this because we're new? <laughs> but then we did enter it last year, okay. and with the mint ones and they didn't win so maybe oh, yeah so this is the new flavor this is the new flavor yeah and the chocolate oranges kick us hated the, the mint ones that was the thing no one <laughs> told you no one wants to say anything but the one new ones they love it's like when you get a new girlfriend and they all go oh thank god i mean like there's nothing wrong with i won't say any names because uh all my exes have been great but when they're like oh Oh, we're kind of relieved, David. We're kind of relieved, you know. Oh, she's so much better. You don't find out what they actually thought of the last one until the new one comes along. No. Do they do that with children? <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank God you had a second, because your first one was a <laughs> <laughs> we'll definitely but, We'll babysit the second one, but we're never going to babysit the first one. Oh. <laughs> but, um, yeah, what, what, has, what has been happening? Well... Have you seen the controversy on Snowden? Controversy on Snowden? What, Edward Snowden? Edward, Edward Snowden has been hiding on the top of Snowden, which is why Trump couldn't track him down. <laughs> no, that's, that's the place to hide, isn't it? To be fair, Snowden's probably the best summit to, to hide on. They've got a lovely cafe up there. They do, and you take the train. Yeah. Exactly. You don't have to worry about that. But this this is quite old. But I thought I'd I've mentioned it in the past. <laughs> yeah, I've mentioned it before. It goes into lockdown. Before we all right. go into lockdown, because there's been quite a bit of controversy because people have had to queue for up to an hour to get to the top of Snowden. What? And yeah, that's quite. That's quite a, it's not. A, it's not a small summit, is it? It's not a small summit. Is it just that, what, to, to go and stand next to the um, the trig point? Yeah. So this was one of the, the one of the the quandaries I had when I ran Man v Mountain is that you're meant to run to the top of Snowden, but you don't have to. So you you essentially run to just be, below the peak, which is when Rat Race see you and they're like, "Yep, they've been here." And you can then turn turn around and run straight down train line. Um, but obviously, in my head, I was thinking I've got to touch the top, right? Because then that's not really summiting. Yeah. Well, that's not really summiting not really unless summiting, unless Briggsy's up there waiting. But uh, I can't can't delay my race performance for that long. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> everyone laughs at that. <laughs> they do. They do. <laughs> um, it's a but seconds, man, it's all right. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, true, if you don't true. understand what we're talking about, A to Z, a bad boy running. Those are the episodes you need to listen to. <laughs> But um, but yeah, but then I had this quandary of, well, do I go and do the, the peak, which I did, but what if I lose my lead because of it? Because someone might just think it's not on the race course, so turn right, straight down the hill. But yeah, people have been to, having to queue for up to an hour on the, the to get to the... An hour? 
because you can take the train to get to that lovely uh, cafe and then walk the top bit it's like the, it's like the going to the eiffel tower i think you shouldn't be allowed to get to the top of the eiffel tower if you've taken the lift and and um, whereas you can walk the whole thing it's exactly the same right and no, basically no disabled people are allowed to go to the summit i mean they they i don't know if they could with a queue like that well yeah i mean wheelchairs okay. wheelchairs are going to struggle yeah i suppose so but um right well but that's but there's now a queue. What, what the disney is the disneyfication of um uh natural beauty isn't it i mean like this, yeah and it's and it's got worse because of lockdown um and because of perceived lockdown as well because people, yeah, and people have just taken the opportunity to, to, to go this. I, like the Lake District has been like really hard hit by the fact that no one, people can't go abroad. They think it's basically, you know, a new version of Magaluf, but just with cream cheese. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'd like to see that, just to see the, the, the bodies. Because in Ma the beauty of Magaluf is if you're there. What the beauty of Magaluf? <laughs> like, no, no one has ever uttered that phrase. <laughs> And so for our, for our non-European listeners, if a Magaluf would be the equivalent of maybe a Cancun or what would yeah. it be the equivalent in Australia? Just the whole of Australia. Um, well, of Australia, they, they normally go to like Indonesia. They go to Bali or something like that. Bali, Bali. Like that. Yeah. So the, the beauty of Magaluf, if you're, if you're there and you're not going large, is that you get up, you go for a run and you see... You go um, for a run. Has any, like, this is so <laughs> alien. Someone going for a run in Magaluf. It, but that's that's the beauty of it and you're there you're feeling all all kind of um worthy and then you see kind of 16 year olds absolutely hanging out um doing the walk of shame in their crop tops and blokes with ripped shirts at seven in the morning looking rough as hell i'd love to see that on the lake district people coming down um some of the big some of the big peaks at seven in the morning. They've had an all-night bender. Way you're you're running off doing a trail. I'd love to see that, but um, I've completely forgot. Oh, yeah, you're right. It is the dis the disification of things like um, of of Snowden, which which can happen in Snowden because you can take the train. But this all became it all got in the news because someone had filmed people cutting the queue. And then the whole queue turning them and starting to chant, which obviously I loved that. I loved the, uh, loved everything about it. The, the, the pack mentality of, of doing the right thing, but also the enforce, rigid enforcement of queuing. But it did make me wonder if you, if you were a trail runner, would they do the same? Like, would you have to queue to get to that peak? And I'm guessing you probably would, right? And then no, suddenly, no, I just don't. Why wouldn't you just run? The thing is, why are they they're queuing to get there? But I take it they're having they're, they're doing photos and stuff. That's what's taking the time, isn't it? Um, it's quite. It's it's a relatively narrow walk. I, I assume that is true, and but it's a, a relatively narrow walk to the top of that. Whereas you do something like Penny oh, Fan. Yes, yeah, yeah. No, sorry, I've, I've got it. Snowden, it is, isn't it? It's quite. Yeah. It's quite a. a it's a, almost a, single track. Yeah. Yes. Because yeah. it's stoned and it's circle. It, yes. It yeah, you're around. right. Yeah, and so I was just wondering what would happen if you were because I'd want to go to the peak if I'd run Snowden, but then you're not going to wait an hour, and whether that would whether they'd understand that and let you through, or whether that would cause an issue. Uh, surely, if you're running it, who cares? There's not as if someone's going to run after you. Just go hop on there, go to the top, hop off. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, does it, has anyone tried it? 
It's just anyone been up there when there's been a queue to get on Snowden, on the, on the yeah. summit of Snowden? Any do-bad as writers. Have ever, ever been anywhere where there's been a queue to get on a summit of something? Well, I mean, some of the times at university when we were summiting, my, there was a queue outside the door all the way down the street. <laughs> as soon as the lads got wind, oh, oh, it was Tottenham goodness. Football Club. They were all over yes. that. Uh, oh, but, um, right. A to Z. Of... <laughs> a to Z. That's not a the A to Z, Z of people. bad boy runner. We don't talk about that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, the thing is, I, I imagine that it's, um, it's, it's quite difficult now. Like, there's just a lot more people on... I suppose on trails, things were a lot busier. A lot of a lot of pathways that and a lot of national parks are being used more than they've ever been used, mm. simply because people can't go elsewhere. I mean, like you try to book. I mean, you're fucking insane if you're booking anything, um, or you can book it. But like trying to book something for like uh, October half term is impossible. There's no there's nowhere to go. Not that you you get go anywhere anyway, because we're going to have lockdown by then. But um, but yeah, it's insane. Like, like there is so many. Uh, just because no one can go abroad, um, mm. you just things are getting used in a way that they've not got used before. And so this it's funny, isn't it? Because they were talking about, uh, you know, how do we get more people using the national parks? How do we get people more using more of the trails and stuff like that? <laughs> and now they've got it. People are like, how do we stop all this chaos? There's too many people. There's just too many people in all these places. How do we get people back to work and mixing in restaurants? Um, oh no! Oh no! It's coming back! It's coming back! <laughs> but I found a hack. I found a social hack. I don't know if it can work in the UK, but this is for our Australian brethren. So in the UK, pubs are shutting at ten, right? Yep. Which is actually, I think, quite dangerous because one of the reasons. Start at two. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. I think we should make it a new campaign. Start at two. Save the <laughs> hospitality industry. <laughs> but that isn't that the whole. I don't know if it's true, but the whole the whole factoid about why British people drink so aggressively. Well, that's, why, that's why they changed, that's the exact reason that they changed the licensing laws because they said, yeah, because it used to finish at 10, didn't it? And the whole, they said that everyone crams it in before 10, which is why we have such a sort of a boozing culture. And now we're just going back to the good old days. <laughs> <laughs> now, I've, I've also read same week, Qantas Airlines have got so few people willing to fly that you can get on a plane of theirs for seven hours back to the starting airport. Oh, yeah, I saw that. And that's because I think so they don't lose their slots. They need to fly still. Yeah, but, but it's the, the fastest selling out um, flights that they've ever had. Really? Yeah. I didn't read that bit. Yeah, I only saw the headline. The fastest, yeah, they put them up for sale. The first, and, of course, environmentalists are gone like fucking crazy. <laughs> Like, uh, there cannot be anything more wasteful and worse than just flying an aircraft around. But it does, it, like, it allows you to see all, like, the major sites and stuff, doesn't it? Oh, was, was that the plan? Yeah, they, they, They're doing low, low <laughs> hovering over cities. Yes. <laughs> they're just going over you Uluru. See, you can see, you can see how, uh, how, how badly destroyed the uh, Great Barrier Reef is as it, as it chugs out a bunch of jet fuel, <laughs> which helps to warm the planet up and destroy the... You can see all of the things. They that, should do know, water skiing off the back or something. Oh, it's, no, it's, it's utterly insane. But they, I mean, obviously they're doing it because they know that you know, they need to do something. Um, yeah. So they can't fly outside of australia so flying around it in it you know obviously in the air um people paying what's it like it was like 795 dollars to like 1500 uh, australian dollars or something like that i can't remember the exact numbers or whether that was us dollars and it would have been um uh, currency rate change but but yeah they're fast they're, they're, they're quickest selling 
um, sold out uh, tickets of all time. Well, I was thinking you could go to the pubs till 10, jump on the plane, carry on boozing all the way through the night. Seven hours is a bit short, though, isn't it? Come back at five. Well, yeah. What's what's the... Okay, right. What we need to do, there have got to be some some workarounds on this for this 10 o'clock thing. Because the 10 o'clock is pubs closing and hospitality closing. I mean, the thing is, the problem with all of this is that it's not really about what you impose. The government really know now that it doesn't matter what they do, 75% of people aren't paying attention to it. Because you can't. It's it's got to a point where when people are weary of it, which is why you know that was their reasoning for taking so long to impose lockdown in the first place, because they know people get weary of it very very quickly. Mm. But um, oh, I mean, Breezy, be, doesn't Breezy know that? But there's just there's going to be um, there's going to be so many lock-ins and stuff like that. It's going to essentially going to create this like this subculture of of people drinking late into the night, or people going around to each other's houses and doing it and blacking out their windows and stuff. Like there's no. <laughs> There's no way you're going to stop it. Yeah, but at least I guess at least if you stop it officially, it's going to reduce the numbers, isn't it? Um, you'd hope. You'd hope. But um, BBR. What? what we need a BBR booze bus. Can you do that? There. Yeah. I mean, why not? Driving around, picking people up at ten o'clock. You know, it doesn't. It's selling alcohol, isn't it? It's not consuming alcohol after ten o'clock on a bus. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we've been talking about ways to avoid sleep. We're going to segue into the guy who talks about sleep. That's quite good. It is. Now, just to explain, this isn't the usual to and fro interview, mainly because Chris knows all the information and I don't know anything, as, as you're well aware. And it's a bit, so, a bit like the Ben Greenfield one. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So Chris and I have a chat, but then at times he's like, right, I, want, I now want to tell you this. You've not asked the right question. So I'm just going to go on to this topic. I'm like, yep, you do that, Chris. So <laughs> that gives you an explanation of why the rhythm of it, of it might not be the usual to and fro, basically because of my uh, lack of knowledge. So take it away, Nick. So, dude, Badders, I've been, I've been promising I'd get Chris on for probably about two years now first saw his talk at love trails I believe two years ago saw him talk at project awesome as well and he is he's a do-badder amongst us he's been to beer lovers he's done many of the uh, the the races we've we've been involved in so i've wanted to get him on because not only well he's he's a he's a brain doctor he's a neuroscientist so we thought it'd be great to catch up with chris and really understand how we can understand our brain to train and live better essentially so welcome to the podcast chris holton yeah thank you very much david that's awesome my pleasure my yeah, pleasure we've, How's... we've known each other for a while haven't we uh, and talked about science on various beer lover marathon yeah exactly well things. it's it's interesting because you i think within it's so easy to just see people to, to not to just see one side of someone yeah and we, yeah we, we fully just exercised together and ran together and, and you you hosted the amazing events some of these yeah obviously bad boy running is amazing um so you brought together a great community but yeah we never really discussed our jobs when we're exercising and meeting up at project awesome so it's a good opportunity for me to tell you a bit more 
Yeah, hundred percent. Because how do you how how does one become a neuroscientist? Is 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 there a an undergraduate degree that leads into it or? Yeah, sure. I'll, I'll describe my background. Um, though I am fairly young, so I've still got a lot more to go. Hopefully, I started uh, a neuroscience undergraduate degree, which is a four-year degree course at the University of Nottingham. Um, so yeah, it's just lots of neuroscience modules with physiology uh, intermingled. Within that four-year degree, I had a placement um, at a pharmaceutical company uh, where I was uh, introduced to sleep research, um, and they were they were looking for new drugs to improve our quality of sleep. Mm. Um, and I'll talk about a bit more of sleep in the second half of the interview. Um, and then after my undergrad, I went on to do a PhD at Imperial College London, which was Way, go Imperial. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's a great, really great place to be. Um, and this is in the diabetes and obesity group. So we had lots of clinicians involved in doing weird clinical trials on dietary fiber and looking at brain scans of, of obese patients and looking at metabolic disease. And I was one of the preclinical researchers, so not dealing with the patients as much, um, but looking at glucose and how our bodies respond to glucose and how much we love glucose. Mm. Um, our brains are just obsessed with it. Um, so that was a three and a half year PhD. And then I went on to do a postdoctorate at King's College London on migraine research. Uh, and then three years at a pharmaceutical company. And I've just started a different pharmaceutical company now. Uh, which which we can't talk about. Can't talk about, no. <laughs> um, yeah. For, but it's to do with an illicit drug. Um, because I'm not very well versed in law, uh, <laughs> kind of intellectual property rights and things like that, I'm, I'm not really allowed to talk about it. Oh, really? Yeah. So is the worry that you'd reveal a secret or say something that the company could be sued for? Can't talk about it. <laughs> oh, no. That's all I want to do now. Ah. Um. <laughs> it's all right. I, what, I, what I can tell you is during the summer, I did do a bit of the COVID testing. Uh, well, sorry, was it spring, summer? I'm not sure now. Um, but yeah, so I've, I, was, I was up in Manchester uh, trying to test some of our mouth swabs or nose swabs that people have been sending in and, and, uh, and seeing whether people are positive or negative to, for COVID. Uh, so that was quite interesting as well. I was able to use my lab skills for that. Oh, wow. Was, was, that, a, was that linked to what you're doing before or people just suddenly... No, not. Yeah, it was just uh, just because um, we needed it to really. Yeah, but now now I'm back on 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 track and kind of trying to find better ways to treat a variety of different diseases. So I would ideally like to reduce um, our kind of widespread epidem uh, kind of chronic pain and neurodegeneration that we see in our increasingly unhealthy and sleep deprived population. Uh, funnily enough, exercise is intimately linked to pain, as it can be both a short-term and source and a long-term treatment for different types of pain. Um, so I'll, I can investigate and discuss some of the changes that occur in the brain due to exercise and show that running marathons can really change the pathways in our brain. Um, but with a caveat is that I'm not a medical doctor, I'm not a physician, I can't tell you, tell, like, tell you on the individual level of what to do with your body uh, and brain. I can just tell you what is reported in the research. Um, but I'll use a multitude of different research sites that we've uh, concluded with, uh, with these studies. Um, lots of um, big 
widespread analyses using real world data in humans. Because you, you've mentioned marathon there. Is there, I've, I've, I've seen a lot of articles where there's this whole, actually you just need to raise your heart rate or um, two minutes a day is all you need. Or then there's the, you need an hour a, a day, three, four to five times a week. And then there's also this, that once you get to math and just everything changes, does, does the type of exercise have a dramatic impact on how it affects you and how it, it impacts your brain? Uh, yeah, probably in different parts of the brain. Okay. So I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll try and introduce the brain, uh, if, particularly for humans, um, because um, humans have gained a larger and larger cerebral hemispheres over the history of our evolution. Uh, this is mostly what makes us the dominant species on Earth, um, which is unfortunate. Um, but and some of these brain areas um, are important for problem solving um, and, and, and uh, learning and memory. And that's what makes us so good as a species. Uh, unfortunately, these are the same brain, brain areas that decline in size and function as we age. So um, which people people think aging is a natural uh, process of, of, of loss of memory and, and it's largely due to the cerebral hemispheres um, changing, um, which is one of the characteristics of humans. Um, and when we look at, uh, so when you look at the brain, it's the cerebral hemispheres that cover most of the brain itself. Uh, underneath those cerebral hemispheres, there's lots of other different nuclei which have a diverse function. Um, doing so many different things, and that's that's why it, neuroscience fascinates me because there's so many different um, different pathways to investigate. Um, and if you delve deeper and look under the microscope into kind of the million, sorry, the thousandth of millimeter um, kind of range, you'll see lots of different neurons, um, which, as we probably know, are the, the drivers of all the action potentials and and cause us to have uh, lots of different uh, network. Um, of neurons causes lots of different functions. Um, but supporting those neurons is a whole host of different cells, uh, mainly glia, which provide lots of glucose and other substrates um, and, and able to take away the waste. There's lots of immune cells um, to protect our brain um, and to get rid of waste again and other dying cells. And obviously every single brain cell and, and the other supporting cells need a blood supply. So the brain has a, a very diverse vasculature to, to provide adequate blood to all of these areas. And depending on what you're thinking of at any one moment, if you're doing a problem solving task or you're sleeping, different brain areas will be using blood more or less depending on what you're doing. Um, so, and, and that's regulated by loads, thousands of different um, molecules to, which make micro adjustments to this network. And how does how does exercise affect those different areas? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so people haven't really talked about exercise as a wonder drug um, in the literature and, and publicised it because it's it's not something that you're able to market and you're not going to be able to make money for it. So people and companies have been looking for cognitive enhancers to combat this aging um, process um, like modafinil or metformin. But actually, um, what's consistent in the literature that's not necessarily reported is that endurance exercise is the only thing that we know of to cause a lasting increase in neurogenesis. 
uh, neurogenesis is the increase in cell neuronal cells in the brain. Um, and lots of drugs do this temporarily, but actually endurance exercise is the only thing that causes a lasting increase in this, which is shocking that um, we don't take this on board in a major way and make use of it. Yeah, um, what, and, and what would be classified as endurance exercise? Yeah, it, it depends. It's uh, subjective. I'll go through some of the studies that, uh, that highlights this. Um, and it, it doesn't occur in all areas of the brain. We, we haven't seen it in all, all areas of the brain um, in humans, um, but we do have rodent data uh, to show that it does. But in, in humans, it's particularly evident uh, that in the hippocampus, which is the memory center of the brain. Um, and there's a lot of research uh, suggesting this. And there's also TED Talks and things showing that the hippocampus um, is increased in size and the number of cells increases with exercise. Uh, one of the main pieces of evidence is uh, research from the University of Illinois, which uh, focused on uh, adults from between 60 and 70 years old. So they split them up into two different groups. One group worked out for three one-hour exercise periods per week for six months, which is enough to increase their VO2 max by around 16% by the end of the study. And then the control group were asked to do a whole host of whole body stretching and toning exercises, but that didn't increase their VO2 max. Um, astonishingly, the, the group that exercised saw a significant increase in the size of the key brain areas uh, that commonly decline with age. Uh, so it hints that performing regular exercise um, in, in only six months of training does have these benefits in, in performing um, in some of the areas of the brain involved in in aging diseases um, and also for problem solving. Um, and have, from the, sorry. have they done that with with um, younger people as well? Is is that something they've? It's harder managed? to do because uh, the brain is um, it doesn't it decline it declines with age and you see it very uniformly as we get older. Um, at, you know, beyond 60 years of age. Mm. Um, so the, 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 the percentage gain that you can benefit from with exercise is more evident uh, in the older population. Mm. If we want to look at the younger generation, then the current techniques that we have aren't quite as sensitive enough. That's kind of why we look at, we have to use larger studies, so lots of, lots of patients, um, or we use rodents, where we can take out the brain and, and properly investigate what happens. Obviously, you can't do that in humans. Um, but there is a large real-world study of more than 55,000 subjects of humans, uh, of which 13,000 of them were runners. Uh, this is um, a research paper called by Lavi in uh, 2015. There's also a similar one by DC Lee in 2017. Mm. So they followed 55,000 humans um, for 15 years and found that running exerted protected, protective effects against all-cause mortality uh, and cardiovascular mortality. So this is all kinds of deaths were uh, reduced, significantly reduced by running, which is great, absolutely great. Um, and, oh sorry, get carry on. Chris. Yeah, it, it, there's so much to talk about, so I'll just carry on to be honest. Um, <laughs> persistent running um, so the longer the, time, the longer the number of years that they ran for was more strongly associated with this mortality reduction. Um, and when you look at the number of days per week that 
the participants ran um, is really surprising. So only one or two days per week of running, um, you know, even as, as less as like 30 minutes per week, reduced the cardiovascular disease mortality rates by 45% compared to people who didn't exercise at all. Um, so, and, and is there a limit on that? Is there, you know, it, it, within within that study, did they find that the more you exercise, the more you ran? The yeah, I, I remember you asked a question that project's awesome. So that if you run um, unlimited, you know, if, if you increase your <laughs> you live running, forever, your brain size just increase. Yeah, because um, yeah, that's what yeah. I need right now. Because I'm really struggling with memory and basic function. Oh no. Um, well, unfortunately, um, as you get to six or seven days of running or other, even other types of exercise per week in this particular study, which is 55,000 subjects, um, but 60, six to seven days per running um, reversed some of these beneficial effects on mortality, um, particularly the cardiovascular benefits. Um, so there was a slight uptick in this. It still shows that if you compared to if, if you didn't run or didn't exercise at all, six to seven days of running was still beneficial. But actually, the, the sweet spot was between one and five days per week of exercise. Interesting, because I'd assume that if, if you naturally had within that study people who were running six or seven days, the chances are that they wouldn't have been intensely running those six or seven days and um in thinking of anyone i know well most people i know who would run that amount they'd naturally have a few recovery days down days or um shorter miles and so that that to me is counterintuitive because i'd the the information i know is more to do with knees and more to do with wear and tear where you when you get to the 70 80 mile plus that's where you're reversing some of the the positives but that that's not a huge amount six times a week absolutely yeah it's, it's less than 30 miles per week or if you walked and you know fast walking that was still classed as exercises 45 miles of walking per week yeah wow so marathon training basically is is bad for you in the long term, yeah, they, they, they follow the, the subjects for 15 years, but obviously um, there will be some outliers in this and maybe the outliers are causing this increase in cardiovascular risk. If you're having, if you've got a few, you know, even one or two or three people who are running a lot and they have mm. an underlying cardiovascular, you know, a heart defect, then, and they, they happen to die during the 15 years of this study then this will be causing some of this change, some of the, the results that we see. So, you know, I'm not a doctor again, but I would recommend checking out, getting a doctor to check out your heart, potentially do an echocardiogram. Um, if you're really serious about your exercise, just to, just to, you know, peace of mind, just to, to, to track whether there are any changes in your heart structure or function as you're putting your body through all of this stress. I know it's reversible stress, but stress nonetheless. And um, and at what point do we start losing like, like the power of our mind? When, when do we start losing our memory typ typically? Is it just as we feel it, you know, 
early 30s or does it is it very varied yeah it's, it's so varied and it depends on a lot of things which i'm going to talk about um and we only really know we're only really scratching the surface of what we should and what we shouldn't do in our daily lives to extend our lifespan um it involves sleep exercise nutrition it's all of those things so you know maybe maybe just common sense um if you, you know if you think you're healthy and you think you're doing everything you can you you possibly might be a lot better than the average population who don't seem to care um you know they they do a lot of things that are not recommended by the world Hall, the world health organization or the government guidelines you know the, the government guidelines suggest the amount of carbohydrates or and and protein and fats you should eat i know some of them are wrong especially with the, the fat intake you should be increasing your your fat content but um they recommend the, the appropriate amount of sleep that you should be getting if you, if you stick within those guidelines then you generally you know you're doing yourself a bit of good but are are those guidelines from from what you know or from your point of view are they there as guidelines for everyone or are they as guidelines almost as a target to try and get the unhealthiest people to aim for that target as opposed to what is actually true for all of us yeah absolutely yeah you hit the nail on the head there if you want to really take this into uh, the next step then there's lots more that we can do so what else does exercise impact then okay um so as researchers look closely at the cells and the molecules that make up the brain we've found several changes that occur during aerobic exercise particularly but this also includes strength exercise strength training um to for the most part uh it's difficult to see the molecular changes in humans as i've said because uh, uh you can't dissect out the brain um in in alive humans um and also the changes are relatively minor and they occur over the period of months to years um whereas if you we use rodents which have a lifespan of 2 2 years you only have to wait a, a short period of time to see these effects so I'll, i'll talk about some of the human studies first um also it, it the caveat of using humans is that it takes a lot of money for large clinical trials um mm. and there's a chance that some of these changes are too small to see but there have been at least 20 clinical trials in patients with alzheimer's disease and other dementias um and they show that exercise produced moderate benefit to cognition in these alzheimer's disease patients we can say for sure that exercise consistently correlates with decreased rates of psychiatric and metabolic diseases uh however there's also been around 40 clinical trials on exercise in patients with major depressive disorder uh, some of them are positive some of them are negative um but when you take them all together we have to conclude at this point in time that there are no significant changes to most of the symptoms of major depressive disorder even though that we know deep down that exercise is good for our mental health but if you oh, really? take someone who is who is classified as major depressive um it doesn't significantly impact their symptoms and does does that mean on average it doesn't impact their symptoms like could could for example because i know for example ali would swear by the the benefit of running on her mental health it could it be that for some individuals it it really helps and some it doesn't and therefore on average it doesn't help or is that psychosomatic yeah absolutely it it's 
probably variable. Humans, you know, we, we're all so different. And uh, across the studies with, in different countries, different cultures, um, there could be complete different opposite changes. Um, but, you know, we can't, the government can't recommend exercise in major depressive disorder because these clinical trials haven't come out with equivocal, you know, unequivocal mm. um, benefits. But it is difficult to see some of these changes in health that occur, occur over long periods of time in human studies. That's why we rely on rats, mice, human-derived cell lines and computational methods to investigate the exact changes after exercise. And these can be used to answer a whole host of questions. But one of my favorite studies is an Australian group uh, where they placed a running wheel in the middle of the outback um, just to see what happened and trained a camera on it for a, a period of several months. And the camera picked up loads of different animals using this running wheel, uh, which is strange because they're in the middle of the outback and they can <laughs> run wherever they want. Yeah. But um, they, they filmed how, you know, house mice running in the wheel, um, lots and lots of different um, types of rodents running. Uh, there was even a slug got on the running wheel and started uh, running. Uh, there's, a, there's a YouTube clip online. I'm happy to send it to you. Um, <laughs> but you can clearly see the wheel is moving where the slug is on it. We're not sure why it's doing it, but it seems to be, particularly in the mice and the, uh, the other rodents in this study, that um, running is a behavioral concept that is rewarding to all of us, uh, whether we're humans or smaller animals. But would they would they come back because in my mind running on it once would be a way of exploring kind of playing doing it again so would to me would suggest there are benefits yeah um we conduct a lot of not we um but there are a lot of other studies uh, using mm. mice in the lab um, where they have the choice between either a running wheel or just to run around their cage. Um, and you can see every single night, uh, female lab mice run around about 10 kilometers, which is absolutely crazy considering they're only like five centimeters tall. Yeah. 10 kilometers every single night, night after night. Obviously, they're nocturnal, so they'll sleep during the day, run during the night. And so it must be rewarding. Uh, we show that they do um, have long-lasting benefits in so many different uh, measurements. So, um, is, and, and would they run around their cage if they didn't have that wheel? Because could, could there be something inherent with running in a big wheel that is cool as opposed yeah, they, to being on a treadmill? They can get up to a good speed. I think that's the rewarding part in this particular context. When they run around the cage, it doesn't seem to be going anywhere because you, you, you hit into the corners of the cage. Mm. Um, it's like during lockdown that you can see people who run around their cars during doing a marathon, running around their car. It's fine once, but would you do it again? Mm. I don't know. Um, but yeah, there's, when, we look, when we look at these studies with running wheels and mice, we show there's a significant increase in angiogenesis, which is the blood supply that um, to the brain um, and in humans we've shown that an increased blood supply improves cognition um, so it seems that this happens every time we exercise there's um, so even if you just do a short amount of exercise once 
in some studies, or if you do a long-term prolonged exercise, every single time we exercise, there's changes in angiogenis, uh, angiogenic markers, which are the blood supply markers. Uh, which is great for the body, um, especially as you think you would you would associate an increase in the muscles, um, but you know, wouldn't necessarily associate running with an increase in blood supply to the brain. And, um, and with that blood supply to the brain, is that something now that we know this that we potentially could take advantage of or for making decisions or for for doing it's obviously harder if you're on on the run but would you be able to study on a on a bike and actually study more efficiently because you've got a higher supply of blood to the brain are there things along those lines that we might be able to leverage that i think that the main takeaways from these studies that is that after, immediately after the exercise there's still a sustained increase in blood supply to the brain so once you've stopped the exercise, then you will have an improvement in cognition. So it's, it's great to run regularly because then you will have a sustained improvement in your cognition. Do you want to run to your exams? Yeah, basically. potentially. Yeah. Which you probably do anyway. You, you used to run anyway. <laughs> yeah. I'd run out of them. I mean. <laughs> but, um, yeah. And, and so um, were there any other ways which exercise impacts the brain yeah um so sticking with metabolism um the, the the improve in in uh exercise that we see in our muscles is due to an increase in mitochondria for for some parts um so we increase the number of mitochondria in our muscle cells so they're able to produce more energy to our muscles we can sustain exercise for longer and we can potentially go faster um, but what you actually see in in studies using mice not only do they increase the mitochondrial DNA, but they increase the DNA of the mitochondria in every single area of the brain that we've studied. So the takeaway from this, it demonstrates that exercise increases the energy capacity of the brain, not just the muscles, which can only be a good thing in this context. We know that degeneration of cells with aging is partly caused by mal mal malfunctioning mitochondria. However, if we continue to exercise, um, as we age, then more mitochondria are produced in the brain and then it continues making the brain function better. One of the other key changes uh, are hormones. So wheel running in rodents um, is shown to increase BDNF, which is a hormone, one of my favorite ones, called uh, stands for brain-derived neurotrophic factor, which is an important protein for healthy growing cells. Um, this increase in BDNF after running is one of the main ways that exercise is good for your health. Uh, it contributes to increases in cognition and the growth of new brain cells itself. Uh, BDNF acts on damaged motor neurons, so to, it restores activity after injury, it reduces pain, and is, is potentially um, one of the causes of, of the stimulus, the training stimulus, where you repair all the muscles and other cells. Uh, sleep deprivation reduces levels of BDNF in the hippocampus particularly, so where memories are formed. Um, but exercise and sleep deprivation combined can restore these BDNF levels. Uh, and, and in fact, every time we exercise, BDNF is released into our bloodstream. Wait, sleep deprivation re yeah, reduces them, you say? Yeah, reduces Okay, them, yeah. yeah, okay, that makes sense, yeah, yeah. Um, but, but if you exercise and, and sleep deprivation, for some cases, BDNF levels are restored. Um, and 
um, yeah, every time we exercise, it's released in our bloodstreams. So if you if you take some blood samples immediately after running, you'll have the highest levels of BDNF. Um, this has been studied in workouts using men. Um, unfortunately, there haven't been many studies in women looking at BDNF um, after exercise. Um, but we so we're keen to investigate that. But I'm I'm sure it's similar, but there may be caveats. I guess you know what other things increase BDNF, David. One of your main Enterprises? Ooh, um, ecstasy? Caffeine. That's <laughs> All right. Okay. That's <laughs> like, oop. <laughs> oh, does it? Interesting. I said, yeah. Ah, is uh, that why it's used as a nootropic sometimes? In yeah, absolutely. It's, it's a, one of the cognitive enhancers, isn't it? Uh, acutely, caffeine improves cognition. Um, and I'm sure it does on a, on a long term, but fairly low level, as long as you time it, time it right. And so does, does that mean there are times you should use caffeine then? For, like, should you be using it in advance of studying because it will allow you to study better, even if you're not tired? Or I'm not 100% sure on this. To be honest, I thought you would be the expert on it. So maybe you should uh, ask. I, I've not really, yeah, I mean, I've, I've not really looked extensively at the use of caffeine in in study. Yeah, just because it's not been my focus. Um, yeah. But it, yeah, nootropics is, is massive, and that's an area now that if I was to do a new product, I'd probably be looking to cut caffeine in with something else to uh, to be a study aid. Oh, yeah. We know it increases BDNF, but I'll go on to some of the deleterious effects of caffeine, which uh, maybe you want to delete from the podcast. <laughs> I know, it is with it. <laughs> Uh, so exercise also boosts the neurotransmitter serotonin, um, which I'm sure you will have heard about. It's blood serotonin levels increase after endurance exercise. Yeah. Uh, plus, there is a change in the serotonin receptor itself in the brain. Um, so they're more able to accept the serotonin uh, hormone um, and has beneficial effects that way. Um, and serotonin is the happy yeah, it mind, improves that? our mood. Yeah, so, so exercise is similar to an antidepressant drug, but without the un unwanted side effects. But uh, I thought you said that. In, so, it, but in long term, it doesn't help with depression. It just helps in the short term. Is that right? Yeah. The, so the studies I've just talked about are for mood in healthy subjects. Um, ah, I see. But yeah, with major depressive disorder, the disease, there's no concrete evidence that we gotcha okay um and, and and is your it to just try and cross those two over do you think that there, there would be short-term benefits for people who had um the disease or of, of that mood raise or, or are they essentially damaged in that area well there, there is a study showing that um the exercise via serotonin reduces learned helplessness, one of the symptoms in, in that disease, um, also for PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. So, yeah, potentially. It makes you feel less helpless. I'm not. Um, yeah, it's, 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 the learned helplessness is a, is a it's kind of a symptom um, of, of, of major depressive disorder. Yeah. Oh, interesting. OK. So, where, where next? Okay, so uh, let's talk about <laughs> nutrition um, because yeah. I did my 
PhD on sugars. I do love sugar a lot, um, but we have to acknowledge that um, that kind of all the excess sugar that we eat in our Western diets um, is pretty much really bad for us, um, particularly if we don't exercise. Um, so exercise improves our ability to metabolize food, particularly sugars. Obviously, we need a fuel to exercise. So if you have sugar in your bloodstream, if you have high blood sugar levels and you go for a run, then all that sugar in your blood, or well, not all of it, but some of it will be used to um, produce energy for running. So it's fine if you're a keen exerciser, um, but what seems to be one of the causes of, of lots of these diseases um, is that high blood sugar levels chronically um, results in commonly seen uh, diseases um, such as diabetes, metabolic disease. Uh, so exercise kind of reduces the, the impact of this. It also inhibits the, uh, the hormone insulin, which is like the metabolism hormone, so that mm. we don't constantly have high, sugar, sugar, uh, high blood glucose levels which is commonly seen in diabetic patients. So exercise is definitely a, a, a key part of maintaining good blood sugar levels. Um, so there are lots, lots of different ways we can think about reducing our sugar. Um, we, could al we could always change when we have the sugar. So it's called periodization of carbohydrates, uh, where you, if, you're, if, you're, if you know you're going to go for a run or it's at the beginning of the day, you know, if you're doing hard labor during the day, that I, in my opinion, it's fine to have, a, have a, you know, a meal that's high in carbohydrates because you're going to use those carbohydrates to fuel your activities. Um, what seems to be the problem is that if you don't, if you don't kind of narrow the window of time of, of eating all these carbohydrates, if you kind of graze throughout the whole day without doing any exercise, and also if you eat lots of carbohydrates um, before you want to go to sleep, um, then you've got high blood sugar levels throughout the whole of the day. There's high insulin levels throughout the day, and it doesn't allow enough time for these processes to reduce naturally. Because we we spoke to Ben Greenfield, and it, it may be that this episode that before, but one of the things he was saying, and I, I think it was more to do with people who were actually exercising, was that a, a better time to eat carbs was actually during the evening because it would allow your muscles to properly refuel. Um, is that does that go against this, or is is that just a different? Um, a different scenario to people who aren't exercising and so therefore when you eat carbs very much depends on what your your needs are yeah i i don't agree in some respects if you're you if you want to exercise several days of the week then you want to think about fueling for the subsequent day um, or, or even if you exercise two days two day two times a day you know you know mm. um Camille Heron exercises, you know, runs twice a day. Um, so you really want to pay attention to improving your recovery with glucose, or you could use other other macronutrients as well to improve your recovery. I wouldn't, I don't think, in my opinion, that having high glucose before um, for a post-workout meal, if you're not going to think about refueling, is necessary um, because you can use everything else. Um, to to restore your muscles, um, so you can use your internal fats and 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 uh, proteins 
to fuel yourself and increase uh, improve recovery that way yeah and can your internal fat be used to replenish glycogen stores that particular question i'm not 100 percent sure okay um what we so we this so the, the brain preferentially needs glucose um um but it can also use other other substrates for fuel um similar to other, other types of the body as well so lipids and fats can be broken down to produce um the precursor to 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 what we use as a precursor to atp so it's pyruvate and acetyl coa so that can be used to fuel us but i don't necessarily know if whether it actually in any massive quantities goes to improve um, change your glycogen stores yeah actually yeah. muscle glycogen is a strange thing um we we've, we do have a lot of glycogen in our muscles um and even after a long hard run you will only deplete your glycogen um up to around about between five and thirty percent so you will always have a lot of glycogen left in your muscles is, is that true even if you hit the wall in a marathon yes i think so um because we're, we're hitting the wall it's, it's all about fatigue in the muscles as well but this the glycogen's there will be glycogen in significant quantities still in the muscles um, you just have to wait a little period of time before you're able to activate them and with hitting the wall is a, is a whole other thing but yes yeah, it's, it's it's been covered i did listen to a great podcast about hitting the wall unfortunately it's a cycling podcast uh, it's called <laughs> trainer road um but they yeah a couple of episodes ago on the trainer road podcast they do talk about hitting the wall and the physiological processes of that so i'd recommend listening to that that's the perfect kind of recommendation because no one's going to listen to it because it's a cycling one so we can we can appear like we're informative but without the risk of losing any of our any of our listeners so ideal <laughs> yeah. um yeah so if 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 you really want to um if you if you've thought about reducing your carbohydrate intake then obviously you've you've looked at a ketogenic diet or maybe you're participating mm. in a ketogenic diet already and a lot of research has shown that ketones ketones are a small molecules similar to glucose but they don't have the the kind of the same effects on the body but they're just used as fuel um, but they have an anti-aging effect um, beyond the role of metabolism by signaling functions indirectly to increase BDNF and various other things as well. Ketones um, do. And ketones do, yeah. So the, the, the main ones are beta-hydroxybutyrate uh, and acetone is one of them, and acetyl, uh, acetyl, acetoacetate as well. Um, and yeah, if... if um, and p people on a ketogenic diet sometimes might measure these uh, ketones in their blood or you, you can also measure it in the breath and the urine um, to quantify how much whether they're in ketosis or not for example you would want to look at um, the level of ketones relative to the level of glucose so you want a, le a low level of blood glucose a high level of ketones so that the ketones are providing the fuel to the body rather than glucose itself and they'll be on a high fat high protein diet typically um, and and how does that affect the so going into ketosis is when you've got that balance then of it's it's more reliant on ketones than it is 
glucose. Yeah. So fat will preferentially be broken down into um, the precursors of ketones, and that will be used as fuel. So we, you won't be relying on carbohydrates as much as a fuel source. You'll be relying on fats and potentially proteins. And that's that's better for the brain, would you say? Or there are a lot of reasons why there's better for it. Um, I, I must say that I, I believe that running or intense any kind of exercise will provide a way to, to you go into you enter into a keto ketosis itself because. Obviously, if you run or do other exercises, you'll be burning glucose. You'll be using it as a substrate, and at some point, you'll be um, you'll be promoting um, breakdown of fat into um, the precursors of ketones. Um, so you will be going, and you'll have a low blood glucose levels. So you will be potentially going into a key, like a ketone-like state because you're doing a high level of exercise, and then you may maintain that for the whole of the night, particularly if you haven't refueled. Um, sufficiently. Um, so lots of people do talk about um, if you do do a hard bout of exercise in the afternoon or early evening, have at least uh, do this at least once a week um, by not eating many carbs during that night. Um, so your body is pretty much low on blood glucose. And then in the morning, if you go for a, an endurance run, um, then you'll be increasing the ability for your body to use fat as a fuel. And, and so do, you, do you think you should do fasted training before then as well, that first run, or is, is the yeah, first run into the second the way to do it? Yeah, so run before you have breakfast, um, particularly carbohydrates anyway. But yeah, you can, for, especially for training, because you can, you can play around with this and it's not going to affect um, your race. If you time the amount of carbohydrates that you take um, in a, a, sim, a simple fashion, um, then you can go into ketosis. Um, so there's, there's quite a few studies looking at ketosis and longevity. So this is how we age healthily. Um, a few of the studies are in mice. We don't have many human trials um, on ketosis um, but uh, that, that last for a long period of time. So we don't know for sure that um, in humans, a keto diet will increase your lifespan. But there are quite a few studies in mice that show that it does. So for example, um, there's a couple of Australian, again, uh, Newman et al. and, and uh, um, Megan Roberts is a researcher in the US uh, where they, they mice have a lifespan of two years. So for the first year of their life, um, the mice were on a normal carbohydrate diet. So, you know, quite a lot of carbohydrates with a bit of fat and a bit of protein mixed in. But at the 13 month period, half the mice stayed on a carbohydrate diet and half went on a ketogenic diet. So they had very low glucose. Um, and those mice that were on a ketogenic diet were longer living, um, had a better uh, muscle strength, um, which extended further into their lifespan. So they measured this by grip strength um, and measured the size of the muscles and looked at different brain markers as well. And it unequivocally showed that uh, a ketogenic diet, when initiated later in life, so the, the last half of your life, um, will increase healthy aging. Um, and, again, and do you need to be in, because I've, I've been sent, for example, keto tablets by, um, from a podcast I went on the States, and I also sometimes do intermittent fasting. But do, do you need to be living on a, a constant low-carb, high-fat diet to really, do you think, achieve those benefits? Or does intermittent fasting once or twice a week cover it 
or taking keto pills? Yeah, I think an intermittent fasting regime does seem to cover most of the benefits. Uh, We've seen in humans, there's been various different studies where they've they've done a one week of, was it one week or five days of of, um, complete fasting every four months. Um, And this seemed to have a significant and long-term effect on healthy aging, um, particularly chronic pain markers, muscle mass, um, and glucose levels and rates of diabetes. So, yeah, an intermittent fasting um, where 5-2 does do similar things. I think quite a lot of the the, uh, the commonly uh, used intermittent fasting regimes do have a similar effect to each other. But yeah, and, definitely do that. And, and when we're fueling for races, then, how does – do we have to – consider our brain in how we fuel as as much as we consider our muscles i'm not sure about that i think reducing the levels of stress before we we race is probably going to have a, a, a better effect so you you know you're not going into the race with lots of particularly if it's a long distance race you don't want to have be stressing about things you know and which which causes an increase in lots of different hormones um, um, because even though it's initiated by the brain, but you'll feel effects throughout the whole of the body, including the muscles, and you'll kind of drive to initiate these muscles into a running form. Yeah, so I'm not 100% sure on that, but yeah, there's, there's you know, maybe there are maybe some techniques you could use mm. to do that. And I, I know you, you had a podcast recently on the transcranial, uh, transcranial stimulation. Mm to improve training um, that seem, does, does seem interesting and I can't really comment on, on the, the company there but um, you know if you're interested in it definitely read the research associated with that. So would you be a proponent of it then Is it, does this, do you agree that it suggests that it's something that could be viable? It, yeah potentially viable um, because we've shown in migraine and a few other diseases that transcranial magnetic stimulation does alleviate some of the the uh, symptoms of these diseases so i don't see why it can't and and they have got data um some of them even clinical trials in humans um showing that it does have benefits with this device that you you had the guy on the podcast for oh great well we've got one thankfully way um oh, cool. Now, we've had a lot of questions on the podcast about sleep. I think it's the one thing that, you know, we can control our diet, but we can't control our sleep. Um, uh, or, or can we? Well, yeah, lots, there's lots of people who come to me anecdotally. When I say I research sleep, they say, oh, yeah, I, I do this, I do that. You know, I can't get to sleep. I can get to sleep, but I wake up early. Um, so many different things. What we do know is that a good quality sleep um, before and after learning key tasks is successful for retaining the information that we learn during these cognitive tasks in lots of different experimental settings. Uh, we know that slow wave sleep in particular is responsible for this. Um, this is possibly why during in humans, uh, in adults, um, uh, during the first part of the sleep, we will preferentially have slow wave sleep uh, more than other types of sleep. Um, 
just to make sure that we get enough good quality sleep, which is... Is, is that deep sleep the, the same thing? Is that what, yeah, what I consider? So there's, okay. Yeah, there's five different stages of sleep in humans. So there's uh, stage one, two, three, and four, of which stage three and four are deep sleep. And then the, the fifth one is REM sleep, rapid eye movement, uh, which is, I don't know why they why the name's stuck. Um, but yeah, the whole body is kind of in, in like a paralysis um, because the muscles are inhibited. Um, but if you open the eyelids of the patient under REM sleep, you'll see the eyes moving from side to side. So there's obviously benefits for having um, this type of sleep, um, and that increases over the period of the night as well. So um, if you don't get enough sleep, you will be missing out on REM sleep. Um, and there are lots of different reasons why this is good, uh, why this is bad, um, but we're not 100% sure of, of, of whether slow wave sleep or REM sleep or other types of sleep are the best. It's kind of, you need a lot of sleep um, to function healthily. Uh, sleep I... also improves your immune function. Um, so when you're sleeping, that's when lots of immune processes are increased. Um, so during the day, you will have a, a reduced immune function because you need you need to spend the energy on lots of other things. You know, the fight or flight mechanism is the commonly used one. Um, you're using lots of other processes and you generally don't need an immune, you know, immune function is generally secondary to that. But when you r reduce all of these stresses and you stop exercising or moving around doing your day job and you go to sleep, then immune function is significantly increased. Um, so as we've seen um, in a study, uh, looking at sleep restriction, uh, the number of killer T cells is reduced by 70% in patients that were sleep deprived. So potentially your immune response mm. to COVID and very lots, you know, lots and lots of other diseases um, is impaired by having a lack of sleep. And, um, and what are you saying is is a good amount of sleep then that we should be aiming for then to ensure our immunities are you know, yeah. boosted enough the recommended daily amount is seven and a half hours by the u.s in adults um and i think the average adult is around seven and a half hours um however as we age we require less sleep so i think if you're if you're younger then you would potentially be looking at more than seven hours sleep every night um, do you know, do you know I, why that is given that actually our memories are failing us more You'd think we'd almost need more sleep to try and recharge that, yeah. Yeah, the sleep efficiency is impaired as we age. Um, yeah, we tend to wake up more during the last part of the night. Um, yeah, and generally, there's, yeah, there's, there's a lot of things going on as we age, So, um, and sleep is one of the, the things that is, is reduced, yeah. Um, but I think if we're exercising a lot, so that there's a study in top end athletes, they actually preferentially had 10 to 11 hours of sleep per night um, to, to, you know, to, to regularly compete in top athletic events. They require 10 or 11 hours of sleep, it seems. So do you, the more do you think if we're, if we're training hard then, is, should we be aiming to sleep more? Absolutely. Yeah, I would absolutely recommend that as much as you possibly can. You know, going to bed is, is awesome. Why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you just have a lion as much as you could? And how do you, because you mentioned how it allows you to almost imprint your memories. 
is is there a proximity to sleep that the distance where actually if you sleep at the end of the day but you've been learning in the morning it's less likely to help no it, it, does it, it make seems, yeah everything during during the day um depending on what you're thinking of um you know if you if you have a lot of things going on then the most pressing issues will be preferentially uh re kind of reconsolidated during your sleep that night um but if given enough sleep you will just retain more and more information that you learn throughout the day and repair more and more of your muscles and stress hormones and things like that will be able to reduce as much as possible and pretty much the longer you sleep uh, up to a certain number of hours you know for example 11 hours 10 or, 10 or 11 hours per night um it just seems to have more beneficial and beneficial effects also from a metabolism point of view you're not eating when you're sleeping so your blood glucose levels are low so it's great and what about things like power naps and kind of granny naps through the afternoon and are they there i know that for example camille does have a nap in the day once she's done a morning run is that something that if we have the benefit of working from home or um should we aim for that is that something that is useful in day-to-day -day life and in exercise yes I, I think having a power nap is is um similar to just sleeping at night to be honest so you, you really want to just take the total amount of sleep that you have in the 24-hour period it doesn't necessarily mean from from most of the human clinical trials that we've we've looked at um it doesn't you know sleeping at night and or power napping during the day doesn't have any one impact over the other it's kind of the total amount of sleep is the most important one um what i would say is from a circadian rhythm point of view you know we've got the day and the night cycle um your body is upregulates lots of things during the day and then downregulates lots of things during the night if you do have a power nap you want to keep the the windows the blinds open and the curtains open so that your body still recognizes its daytime and it doesn't kind of completely reverse its physiological functions just because you're having a power nap during the day does so does it does that limit with the light which phase of sleep you'll go into then i don't think i think it's individual to the person it depends on what you've missed out on beforehand i'll go into a few things that potentially affect your sleep um, we're going to talk about alcohol so you might want to turn off at some point um, if you if you really <laughs> don't want to hear about the deleterious effects of alcohol also I, I should add that there's been a study in top-end professionals um, you know the CEOs of, of major companies the ones that profess that they can get by adequately with just four or five hours of sleep per night and they've done that for years on end and they're adamant that this is fine um, and that if they try and lie in at the weekends, for example, um, they won't necessarily have, they won't have like a sleep rebound. They'll still be sleeping five or four or five or six hours per night. Um, but the, in this study, they took these top professionals, um, they put them in a laboratory setting in a nice sleep suite, um, and they turned off all the distractions. So they got their companies to, to put, their work on hold for a while and it is true after uh, for the first two or three days they still had four or five hours of sleep per night but as their stress load you know the day-to-day -day workload decreased they didn't have so many th things going on in their day-to-day -day life they were just focusing on normal 
normal things like eating and sleeping and occasionally exercising and just going for walks, then they increase the amount of sleep back up to the normal population. So I would be very cautious of people who say that they can get by or they, you know, they just can't have eight hours of sleep per, per night because quite a lot of studies have shown that given enough time and if you de-stress your body enough, you will go back up to the, the, the average amount of sleep. This has also been shown in Navy SEAL um, uh, people as well, um, with a, a pretty famous researcher who, who was a Navy SEAL, then retired and then did, uh, did a medical degree and then started looking at the problems that, that Navy SEALs have. Um, it's quite an interesting study there. I can, I can let you know if you need. And with those those uh, people who are having just the four or five hours, is is that very damaging during that period? Because we've probably all been under intense pressure at times. Like, is that something we should be very nervous about? Or, you know, can you catch up on sleep? Can you rebound from periods of huge anxiety and uh, lack of rest? You can if it's a short-term um, period of insomnia, for sure. But if, if the sleep impairments go on for several years or several decades, um, we have lots, lots of real-world data showing that a chronic lack of sleep increases the prevalence of pretty much every single disease that we've looked at, including cancer. Uh, testosterone levels are reduced in men and women. Um, along with increased metabolic stress, as we've previously alluded to. Um, research suggests that a couple of years of having good quality sleep um, after a long period of, uh, a long period of kind of reduced sleep does reduce your, so sorry, it increases your running capabilities for the, the subsequent season. So if you're doing a cross country season year after year and you have kids, and obviously having kids, bringing up kids is going to have a, a, a reduction in sleep for a, mm. a couple of years at least. Um, but then when, and you'll, you'll, you'll know from your cross-country cross season, your times from that. But then if you have a, a period of uh, one or two, probably two years uh, for, for most of the studies um, of good quality sleep, that will significantly improve your cross-country season for the for the next two years. Um, so it um, seems to be equipped, yeah. And when you say significantly improve, is, is that returning you to where you, sh you would have been had you not had the sleep? Or is it actually, um, is it potentially better than if you had not had the kids? Um, yeah, it returns, it returns back to baseline. Okay. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think it's individual for the person. Um, so we know that you know it's pretty much a given, and humans have adapted really well to to chronic sleep depression, uh, chronic sleep deprivation mm. um, when they're rearing children, mm. um, and that's why we have an increase in slow wave sleep at the beginning of the night, and then have less slow wave sleep as we go on. Um, but if you do this for a good number of years, for example, throughout your whole career. Um, then we know that has significant uh, increases in pretty much every disease. And how does exercising impact on our ability to sleep? Yeah, um, we will be happy to hear, or not surprised, I guess, that exercise does help you get to sleep. Um, one of the mechanisms is this, is adenosine, ATP is the 
the, the uh, energy source that we use. Um, and after exercise, there's an increase in adenosine, which is one of the one of the molecules involved in ATP. And adenosine actively promotes sleep, so you kind of feel very sleepy once you've had a hard bout of exercise. Um, and it's kind of over the course of a the day, there's a gradual increase in the amount of adenosine um, in the extracellular space around your neurons. Um, but after exercise. Um, yeah, it was kind of yeah. So there's, a, there's an increased need to sleep there, and you see that in, in other diseases as well. Linked to my research in migraine, where sleep is also very important. So with migraine patients, sleep is one of the most common ways to recover from a migraine episode. So you know you go to sleep if you feel the pain come on. Yet we know also know that a lack of sleep, for example, jet lag and other sleep disturbances, brings on a migraine. Um, so it kind of sleep is so super important in that kind of thing and it's probably important in your exercise physiology as well so what um, actually is a migraine out of interest oh a migraine um it's a, a migraine is classed in the the umbrella of primary headache disorders so migraine affects around a sixth of the population at any one time of the global population so it's a lot of people uh, you know, mm. a billion people um, it's absolutely crazy. It's the largest neurological disease in the world. Um, and a, a migraine isn't just the, the kind of pain associated with the migraine headache. Um, it is also a period of lethargy, uh, sleep disturbances, but also lots of other the whole body disturbances that occur two to three days before the pain and two to day, three days after the pain. So migraine is quite a, a big disturbance in the brain and the vasculature. And are they, are they the cause of the migraine or are they part of the migraine? Yeah, sleep could be a cause, a lack of sleep or disturbed sleep, for example, jet lag could be a cause of the migraine. Um, it depends on the patients. But yeah, there was mm. a lot of different studies of this. Um, and co yeah, commonly migraine patients report their migraines coming on at a certain time of day, for most likely eight o'clock in the morning. So when they wake up, um, or it's, you know, it seems to be maybe plays with with the light, you know, the, the increase in the light during the morning that brings on a migraine as well. So it's definitely a circadian and a sleep um, component to it. So if you're prone to, to migraines, is it worth considering the the amount of light you let into your bedroom, per se? Uh, that's tricky to say. Yeah, I, I can't speak for for. For, my, for migraine patients um, in particular. But yeah. But yeah, going back to exercise, um, so it, it, exercise does improve the quality of your sleep. Um, and it's been shown particularly in older adults. So we had a group of 64-year-old women um, where they were split off into two groups. Uh, so one group had were asked to do 55 minutes of moderate intensity exercise. Um, and the moderate intensity exercise improved the quality of sleep for up to two days afterwards. However, in the control group, 75 minutes of a low intensity exercise did not significantly improve sleep. So, so it, yeah. and, and what would an intensive, would most of what we consider running be considered intensive or does it actually have to be things like tempo runs, interval sessions, sprint training? Yeah, that's hard to say because it's very individual to the person, isn't it? Mm. Some people think their their slow runs uh, are, are slow enough, but actually, when you look at the heart rate data and other physiological values, it's still not 
uh, recovering their body as much as they think it is. Um, but what we do know is, is that it does improve your, improve your quality of sleep if you exercise, so that's great. Um, I'll go into a couple of other things. If you, if you are having problems sleeping, then there are quite a few things that easy things that we can do to improve the quality of your sleep so that you get um, get the most out of your day, really. Um, so, for example, a high carbohydrate meal before bed has been shown to increase the number of awakenings. So this does go against what um, you've talked with Ben earlier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, because you will just wake up throughout the night, it seems, in, in some of the studies. Or, um, uh, similar alcohol before bed because it's got carbohydrates in it. Um, I'll go into that um, later on because alcohol has lots of other um, effects. Um, yeah, two to three hours. If you if you conduct intense exercise two to three hours before you go to sleep, um, and you don't allow your body to cool properly before bed, this can affect your your sleep. Um, it, it can prevent you from going to sleep, the latency to sleep. Um, but you can get around this um, because obviously, um, if you if you have a, a shower and you allow the water to stay on your skin, this will cause evaporation and your body temperature will cool down sufficiently. Um, the reason why temperature is important because it's a very circadian process uh, is body temperature. So mm. during the night, your body temperature will be low um, and then it will, start, it will start to increase, which actually helps to wake you up An increase in, in temperature does. And then throughout the morning and early part of the afternoon, you will have a high temperature, body temperature, um, and there will be a little dip in the afternoon, which is possibly a consequence of, of our siesta type need. And then body temperature increases again in the evening, um, which is one of the one of the reasons why uh, exercise, uh, if you exercise in the evening, um, you, you perform slightly faster. Um, it's w one of the reasons it's why is because there's an increase in body temperature. There's lots more physiological processes being turned on, um, but you do need a dip in body temperature um, for you to sleep properly. And is that is that a dip from our normal? body temperature or could we for example take a hot shower to increase the temperature to then create the dip yeah a hot shower yeah that's fine yeah a hot shower um just any kind of water on your skin will um will evaporate and that, that results in a, a decrease in but, in skin but without the but without the evaporation effect say for example could if we were to get um very hot before bed and then to say we were sat in front of a fire getting very hot and then moved into somewhere cooler even if that if we were increasing the background heat would that help us when we then return to the normal temperature or is it the fact that you're actually lower than your kind of 37 degrees that your body's used to yeah the, potentially that that would improve your ability to get to sleep in the first place but ultimately if you want to stay asleep for the, the duration of the night it's your body temperature that dictates that but yeah i think you're right so trying to create a, a cool room um work because it's, it's interesting that we always jump under huge duvets when we go to bed yeah absolutely yeah i do the same though i'm, I'm a hypocrite for most of these points that i, I talk about uh, especially the next one, where uh, restricting caffeine. If you really, um, if you really want to get a good night's sleep, you've got to significantly restrict your caffeine intake. Um, 
obviously individuals differ in their response to caffeine. So some people are overstimulated by 250 milligrams, which is two and a half caffeine bullets, I guess. Um, and, and depends on the coffee you get, but it could be three cups of mm -hmm. coffee. Um, but others are less affected. Uh, for example, chronic users of caffeine or coffee, you know, chronic coffee drinkers, they appear to develop some tolerance to the stimulating effects of caffeine. However, the the effects on sleep are, still don't go away. Um, so, and I, I know lots of anecdotal reports that say that they can still drink copious amounts of coffee or tea um, in the afternoon, in the early evening, um, and still get to sleep. Um, but actually caffeine lasts for as long as 14 hours in your bloodstream and your body therefore can still have significant effects on sleep even if you consume it in the late afternoon um, and it's widely acknowledged that around six cups of coffee per day spread evenly throughout the day are likely to cause insomnia at night um, this is the, the medical definition of, of insomnia of, of either not being able to go to sleep or waking up early during your sleep um, this is because the caffeine you may be able to get to sleep early because you have other stress loads and you're, you're very tired for, from other things. But because the caffeine is in your system, in your bloodstream throughout the night, once you've had even a, a, a small amount of sleep, the caffeine in your blood will cause physiological changes which will wake you up from your sleep. Um, so under these circumstances, a vicious cycle can develop, as you can mm. imagine. So you require, you, you know, you've woken up early, because you, mm. you haven't had lack, you've had lack of sleep, so you need a few cups of coffee to overcome this excessive daytime, daytime sleepiness. But then these few cups of coffee are, are enough to disrupt the next night's sleep, and therefore then to overcome that, you need more coffee, um, so you can get into a, an exacerbated daytime sleepiness syndrome. Um, so I definitely recommend reducing caffeine and yeah. again periodizing it. I, I use it for races. So I obviously yeah. use caffeine bullet um, some of the time. Um, but yeah, I, I'll try and restrict caffeine to, to the early parts of the day and not be um, and not use it at night if I really care about my sleep. Obviously, if one or two nights per week, if you really have an important thing to do you know, at work or a race, um, then coffee is great as a cognitive enhancer. So you, you, um, you, you should use it. And there are plenty of studies that show re that regular coffee users do have improvements in uh, cognit cognition and other health span markers. But there are people who um, um, where, where sleep is significantly affected with lots of cups of coffee at night. And, and uh, most people don't know this, but I, I actually have decaf coffee whenever I drink coffee. And um, for exactly that reason, um, you know, the more you, the more caffeine you have, the less powerful it is. But interestingly enough, you mentioned how it can stay in the body for 14 hours. Um, was actually for some people, it can stay in the body for up to half a year, depending on the, uh, the, the half life of caffeine within people is so varied um, that. If, yeah, some some people should just never have caffeine because wow. it yeah it it will stop them sleeping and it will actually slow them down. Like it's it's quite a strange drug in that some of the the benefits or the majority of the people are actually the reverse happens with others. Um, which is there's not many drugs actually like that. But yeah, um, wow. 
Yeah, I'd be keen to see that research. So you have decaffeinated coffee, and then when you have something that you really want, like a race, um, yeah. you would take a whole load of caffeine, and you'll be yeah. very sensitive to it because you haven't had much caffeine in the period of like a week or two or three weeks beforehand. Yeah, it's, it's like binge week, binge drinking at the weekend. You know, you get the same principle of bright. Yeah, um, so alcohol is sedative. So it, if you, it is great if you want to get to sleep quickly, as we all know. Uh, um, but it, unfortunately, alcohol has so many other deleterious effects. Um, for example, it's particularly on sleep. So it reduces the deep sleep, the slow wave sleep that is so important for our brains. Um, and the one, you know, the, the sleep that we preferentially have at the, the first part of the night. So drinking alcohol at night um, does affect our slow wave sleep. Um, luckily, alcohol has a, a, a faster, a shorter half life um, than caffeine, so it's quickly metabolized. And blood alcohol levels actually return to pretty much zero around about halfway through the night. Uh, is that right? Is that is that relevant of how much you've drunk? Uh, up to a certain amount, yeah. If 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 you get alcohol poisoning, that's a whole different game. Um, but yeah, the enzymes, the half life is is dictated not by the amount of alcohol in your blood, but how quickly it's metabolized. So it's reduced by half every certain number of hours, and then reduced by half again, and then reduced by half again. Mm, oh, okay. I see. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, um, so it does return to zero around halfway through the night. Unfortunately, there's a, a rebound effect in which alcohol is then wake promoting um, because there's no alcohol, you know, there's, there's no alcohol in the system suddenly promotes wake. So you'll notice that after a few hours of supposedly deep sleep where you don't actually have much slow wave sleep, you'll wake up more frequently um, after alcohol um, and have fragmented sleep patterns for the rest of the night. And also because you need the toilet. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's one of the main things that a sleep researcher I've talked to um, agrees agrees with. Even drinking water before bedtime, he he says you should limit that because if it increases your, you know, if you if you go to the toilet once per night just for just from drinking water, then you're going to have a more fragmented sleep. Um, alcohol also seems to give you more vivid dreams in quite a few studies that I've looked at during the second part of the night. Is that a bad thing? It's hard to say. Yeah, hard to say. Yeah, so there's there's been quite a few questions from do batters about sleep deprivation, actually, and how to train for it. Because in a, a lot of us, if we're doing 24-hour races, you're going to go through the night. But also, you're doing things like UTMB and other races, you're, you're, or something like the spine. You're essentially against the clock for multi-days. Like, should should you and can you train for sleep deprivation, do you know? Yeah, it's interesting you talk about UTMB. There is a study looking at runners in the UTMB. It was published in 1989 by Van Helder. Uh, say Van up, Halen like, then. It's like, wow, <laughs> just got to jump. But, sorry, anyway. Yeah, but it, it, there's, a, there's a few outcomes from this study, but it showed that ultramarathoners in the UTMB who finished without sleep were faster than the marathoners, the ultramarathoners who had sleep breaks in this. So if you can survive without sleep for the duration of the UTMB, it seems like overall you were faster in this 1989 study. And, and do you, do, I mean, just because I would be a bit nervous about that, because that in some ways would sound in, intuitive because 
if you're going to do it in 18 hours, you're not going to sleep. Um, but is that study good in that would you say it takes similar athletes who are running similar speeds, except some choose to sleep and some don't? Yeah, you're right. It could have selected out certain athletes there. Um, we'll have to delve into the data. Um, but it also suggested that if the runners did try and adopt a sleep management, management strategy, they call it, mm. where they kind of preload their sleep, they try and get as much sleep as they possibly can before the race, then they had better outcomes than runners who didn't have that sort of thing. So, and so you can you can actually overload on sleep. It is possible. Is it, so you you would you would lie in, you would get an extra power nap. Because um, I I know going into something sleep deprived is is bad, but it is possible to get credit on your card. In the short term, yeah. Ah, and interesting. And and can you? Given what you said about sleep deprivation affecting recovery, affecting memory, all these things, like can you train for sleep deprivation then in a in a successful way? I think you can train for pretty much everything um, if you, as long as you, yeah, you, you, your body will adapt very well. Humans are so good at this. So if you do deliberately try and you know, you, you do train throughout, you know, you try and run through the night as you might want to do in a before a UTMB race um, without sleep, then your body will be able to more likely adapt to this sort of thing. You can't, you, you, you'll, be, you'll be doing better with that strategy than just going straight in and trying to wing it for sure. So say, for example, I guess the hard thing is that so much of sleep is about sleep patterns as well and, and try not to disrupt it. So would you recommend, for example, um, people who were going to attempt races that were definitely going to require them to, to go through the night and potentially um, have to think about sleep as a tactic, training during um, the early hours once a week, so your, your Saturday nights you do your long run at two in the morning, and then sleep in in the morning. Would, would that, do you think, train you well for it, or would the, the disruption to your sleeping patterns mean that it probably wasn't worth doing? Yes, I think we can assume that. There is a few studies looking at races conducted in the morning compared to those in the afternoon, and if you if you do all of your the, all the bulk of your training in the morning for a 10 o'clock marathon, then you will do better. Um, whereas if you train in the afternoon for an afternoon marathon, then you will do better in that compared to controls. So you could probably extrapolate that to nighttime running as well. Although I, I guess the difference though within, because preparing your body to run at a certain time is one thing, but would the, can you catch up on hours then quite easily? If, if for example, I, I have a big night and I just go out let's say I'm not having caffeine, I'm not drinking, but I go out to four in the morning. If I lie in and have an afternoon nap and then go back to, to sleep at the normal time that evening, is that the equivalent as if I'd have just, if, if, I've, if I've slept the same total hours as if I'd have gone to bed normally? Yeah, it's tricky. Uh, in some ways it is, but that is one of the definitions of jet lag is what you've described. So there will be lots of other physiological changes associated with it because you will have lied in for so long, then 
you know, various other, all your stress hormones and, and other things will have switched on at a later period. So do you think in a way then, given that that is a negative, that it, it's almost worth in the same way that we would, if we're training for a 100 miler, we'd probably do a 40 mile race at some point, we'd probably do a 60 mile race. Do you think it is then worth training ourselves up to having um, the odd race through the night, of which we then have as our semi, our practice race, and then we recover and then we carry on training. So we actually factor that in as part of the training. I'm, I'm not sure about the question. Yeah, I'd be keen to keen to see what the do-batters think because there will be a lot more. They will have a lot of experience in this. I haven't run an ultra marathon through the night, so and I'm I'm not aware. I'm aware of one study, but it doesn't doesn't really look into that. So yeah, it'd be a really interesting question to ask. And we've had um, like Camille, for example, when she broke the. I think yeah the 24 hour record she slept during that and she hadn't intended to I think she was only down for between two two to three minutes um is do you know much about that type of sleep would she as you mentioned um we go into deep sleep quite quickly when it's the first type of sleep if we're mid-race would we go into into deep sleep do you think in those two three minutes I'm not sure about two to three minutes, but it it would be significantly shortened. Yeah, if, you, if you've got a lot of sleep pressure, but all of these things are going, all of these things are going on in your inside your body, saying sleep, 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 um, then you're much more likely to go into deep, into slow wave sleep, um, very, very quickly. Yeah, so potentially a two minute or three minute nap could help. And obviously for her, if she says it, it helps. Um, it, it does because sleep is such a um, a kind of subjective marker um, so you know you, you know how well you, you've slept so she will be able to tell you that way but most of the studies that we use um, use a, a nap of at least 20 minutes 20 minutes is usually the sh one of the shortest times um, and we, we know um, in, mo in quite a lot of the studies that a 20 minute power nap um, during exercise does seem to improve your subsequent strength or um, VO2 max tests. So there is a, a group at Bangor University um, and also Donald Blee Wise in Cleveland, Ohio, have looked at this. Um, it's going, I looked at this. Um, I read their research quite a while ago now. Um, but the main takeaways are that ad adults and athletes who sleep adequately show no improvement in running performance or cognition tasks. But those who sleep the least show uh, the greatest improvements after a 20-minute power nap. So if you don't have any problems with your sleep, mm. um, then a 20-minute power nap between interval sessions or between your first run of the day and the second part of the day won't necessarily produce a, a change in performance. But if you do have problems with your sleep, then a 20-minute power nap will help. The Bangor I... University one uh, used a 30-minute treadmill test in the morning and they're at 75% uh, a VO2 max, and then tested with having one group having a nap and one group not having a nap, and then they put them on the treadmill again and just run them to exhaustion, and that's how they tested that. So um, the ones with a nap did seem to run longer to the, in the test to exhaustion. Because I'd I'd imagine there's a point as well, because a lot of us train so much that when we for example, get to you know, Camille Heron and, and Mo Farah and Paul Martinesi. Um, 
levels of training that we actually need far more sleep than we suspect. And so potentially that's why the power naps are actually then beneficial to them because they need more than we do. Yeah, that could be correct. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, we, we it's been shown in, in, in top end athletes that they would preferentially have 10 to 11 hours of sleep. So they obviously have that pressure going on inside their, their bodies that telling them to sleep for that amount of time. Yeah. And when we come to planning events, are there any golden rules or any general periods where we know, for example, that we we can function in general until so many hours, at which point we will suddenly go downhill? So say, for example, we were to take a 36-hour race, 48-hour race, something like the Barclays 60-hour race. Is, is it very flexible, that elasticity of how long individuals can run for before they need to, to sleep or um, are there certain cutoff hours where we're like by this point everyone needs to consider sleeping yes yeah, it's a super interesting question um quite a lot there's quite a lot of older studies from the 60s and the 70s that just sleep deprived patients or sometimes prisoners um, for as long as they could and, and it, they, they didn't really find the answer to the question there were some people who slept who didn't sleep for 14 hours um, and they were asked to do tasks and various things and um, and then you know after the 14 hours of not sleeping they didn't necessarily recover all of that sleep um, in the subsequent days when they were released from the study they had a couple of days with lots of sleep about 16 hours and then they went back to their normal sleep patterns for really 40 hours that? Uh, 16 or so 16 yeah okay um so do you th do you think there is a way in which we can so say for example i decided i was going to do the spine is are there any golden rules by which i should potentially try and plan my sleeping or is it a case of until you do it just gotta be um pragmatic and respond to how you're feeling yeah i think it's sleep might not be the most important um, variable in in, in, a, in such a long race um, because you'll have so many other fatigues going on. So interestingly, your muscles in such a long race, your muscles won't fatigue as, as much as your cognitive, like the CNS brain, um, the action potentials going from your brain down your spinal cord into your muscles, telling your muscles to fire, 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 and keep running, keep running, keep running. That is one of the main processes that reduces during a long endurance event such as the spine or UTMB. So being able to train your brain to add a, you know, consistently produce that stimulus is a very interesting way to do it. And if, you, if you're able to find out something, how to do that, um, then yeah, it would be really, really good. Um, but really, you have to just concentrate, really concentrate in the latter parts of the race. Uh, if, you, if you know that you, if you find yourself getting slower and slower, um, you, you have to concentrate more and more to provide that stimulus to the muscles to tell them to keep running. And is is that something where the 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 brain's system? So, for example. If we were to start focusing on one particular thing and thinking about times tables or um, thinking of stories or reciting a poem, would that re-engage the brain and wake the brain up in a way that would also allow it to 
then signal to our muscles that they need to keep on moving or or are they unrelated yeah i'm not sure about that yeah because you, you really want to be focusing your energies on running so if you if you distract the brain by thinking about something else then you could potentially be wasting some of your you know some of your cognitive load on something else that you don't need to but now we've sure. got We've, we've got quite a few questions for the do-badders, which I know we can't cover. For example, uh, Christophe Dever asked about um, CBD oil, which we, we can't go into. Ali's asked about uh, fibromyalgia pain. Um, fibromyalgia. It, yep, that one as I lo- well. I love your pronunciation on the podcast. I remember <laughs> when you first talked about uh, ketones. I think you pronounced it ketone, ketonese. Yeah, I mean, at, at the moment, my my memory and my uh, my brain function is so bad that the letters come into my mind before I get to engage my, the rest of my brain. But yeah, um, that pain is is that something you can you can comment on? Fibromyalgia is uh, yeah a significant uh, chronic pain disease. I'm not aware of any studies uh, looked at it. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I don't really research fibromyalgia, so I wouldn't be able to comment. I'm afraid. Yeah, it's pretty horrible. And um, we 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 did say off uh, off record, Chris and I, that we pain isn't really his background in the same way. So um, I, there were quite a few questions that we haven't been able to cover. My my friend uh, Elizabeth, she she mentioned that she's someone who's struggled with insomnia for decades. And we've talked a little bit about the idea of catching up on lost sleep. Like if, if you are someone who has been an insomniac, should, should you be aware of that if you recover or when you get the chance to sleep and just try and sleep and sleep and sleep and sleep and sleep as much as you can? Or is there a limit to that? Yeah, after a long, prolonged period of chronic insomnia or, or uh, then you will have an initial rebound once you've once you've recovered from that. You will increase the amount of sleep for a short period of time, but you won't necessarily get that back. The body is amazing at adapting, so she will have adapted to um, a, a lack of sleep at some to some point. So there will be you know a moderate amount of slow wave sleep within her limited sleep that she gets. But yeah, it, it is worth being aware that you don't want to rebound into that and, and try and reduce the amount of stresses that you have during a day so you can adequately maintain a good level of sleep later on. And if you have been struggling with, with sleep and insomnia, is, is it a case of just trying to de-stress yourself as possible? Like, what Are there good ways, techniques to try and create yourself um, a bit more of a rhythm? Yeah, it's it's obviously really more complicated. You can't just a physician can't just tell the patient to just take out all the stresses in your life because that is your whole life. Um, so yeah, creating a nice rhythm um, and the things as I suggested, you know, and also you know trying to keep your bedroom separate to your work life um, so that your kind of your brain subconsciously knows that when you enter the the bed or into the bedroom at least that it is only for one or two purposes one of those being sleep does that mean porn stars often have insomnia i don't know yeah <laughs> i didn't expect to know the answer that's your fair chris but um <laughs> let's get some more questions um that one out of us 
Um, this is one that I don't know if you'll be able to answer. So Rob Dun uh, Duncan asks, have we evolved to forget pain? Uh, certainly not. There are a couple of mutations that have been reported in uh, kind of families in various parts of the world which have a mutation in one of their iron channels, uh, for example, one of the sodium channels, and they can't feel pain. Um, but it's very, very rare, and it's it's very we're we're very happy to read that research because it just shows how incredible uh, these different populations are. But pain is a necessary part of how we feel. Um, it's really important for our day-to-day -day lives so that we we know what causes pain and how we how we what we can do to reduce pain. You know, from the acute pain side of things, um, so we don't do things to destroy our hands, destroy our bodies. You know, you want to keep your fingers intact. You don't want to be touching hot hobs all day every day because um, you won't be able to live that long and function properly. Um, but then that's the acute pain side of things. But then chronic pain um, is what I've been trying. To in my in my previous uh, job to look at uh, new drugs for chronic pain, um, there's a whole new game, uh, a whole new kind of process there where there's lots of different acute um, pains, um, but over a long period of time, and the definition is three months. Um, the, the the constant uh, battle between all these acute pains causes a, a physiological change in your central nervous system, your brain and your spinal cord, and this creates a kind of a wind-up effect, uh, which uh, chronification of, of chronic pain. So even though the acute inju injury has gone away, uh, it doesn't matter what it is. Um, if you if you can see chronic pain, um, then you, it's kind of a neurological effect, and there will be changes in, neuro in neurons and the structure of your brain um, to reflect that. Um, but it doesn't what, what does that result in? It, what does that result in? So you, you then just have constantly have pain, even if you're not actually re receiving the pain physically? Yeah, it depends on the condition. You could have constant pain. Fibromyalgia um, is, is kind of a, a, a pain that sustains for a long time, but often it comes in bouts of, of non-pain and, and, and then sometimes pain. That has a circadian rhythm to it, um, like lots of other things. So you'll, you'll feel more pain at certain times of the day, depending on what kind of chronic pain it is. It's really interesting. And we've we've had a question about female females and pain. Is we often hear of women being able to take pain more than men because of childbirth, various other things like that. Is is there a distinct difference between how men and and women perceive pain? Some literature reports suggest that it is, and that's what's brought about this kind of wow, yeah, women respond to pain differently. But in reality, we haven't studied it enough between and looked, you know, compared men versus women. Uh, one of the drawbacks of of scientific research is classically they use men for so many studies, and they they don't use women um, for a whole host of reasons. But just to to make the data tighter, really, so that we can draw conclusions easier with a smaller sample size. So we what we really need to do is in, compare women and men with a lot with a whole host of different pains, different conditions, and then be fully able to answer that. And do you think do you think your gut instinct there will be they will show there to be a difference and do you think that sh that should change how we train potentially and also um what type of races one's more naturally suited to i don't know i'm afraid yeah i don't know with with 
I know a bit about the diseases, but I don't know with respect to exercise. So uh, you've kind of covered this a little bit, but Michael Holiday was wondering when he gets injured and can't run, what exercise would you say is the best alternative to try and create that a little bit of a happy kick that you get from doing running? Yeah, it's a difficult one, isn't it? Because you miss it so much. Um, uh, any, I, I can't tell because I don't know the nature of his injury. You know, mm. obviously you want you want the injured part of your body to be able to recover, and you don't want to over overstress it and recover. Uh, you want it to recover properly. So just you've got to find something that, that's a, a nice balance between the two. And then Chris Greenway asks, after a marathon, he always struggles to sleep. Is, is that something to do with the mind or is that the the muscles themselves stopping him getting to sleep? Yeah, there's a whole host of reasons, um, some of which I've covered before. But yeah, you, you, you'll be lo loads of things need to shut down before you can go into an adequate sleep. Um, so it's just being aware and being able to um, moderate those successfully. So, yeah, body temperature, um, de-stressing yourself, caffeine and things like that. You want to. Try and do as much as you can to promote uh, a normal sleep. Hydration, obviously. Great. Well, I think we've covered most of the questions. So thank you so much, Chris, for, for being so informative and for opening yourself up. Given that you've listening, you've listened to the podcast previously, you know how bad it can go. So uh, fair play for allowing yourself to be part of that. Um, but yeah, if, if people want to find out more about about sleep, about the brain, or if, if they want to get in touch with you or to follow you and your progress and, and your stories, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah, um, they're welcome to contact me on Instagram, though I don't regularly use it or post it, Chris Holton underscore. Uh, also, LinkedIn, I'm, I'm on there, so you can find me and message me on LinkedIn. I'm happy to answer any questions that we weren't didn't answer during the podcast. Uh, one of the but, you know, I have to give kudos to the literature that I read. Um, there's a government, a U.S. government website, uh, PubMed, that has a wealth of information. So if they want to get more information on particular studies, you can look, uh, you can go there. Lots of them are open source now, so um, they're open access to everyone. Uh, so, um, and then there's also meta-analyses, so that you can, you don't have to delve into the nitty-gritties of each study, but someone will have looked at a whole range of similar research and then kind of, kind of summarize it in a scientific way. So that's all on PubMed. Also, you can use Google Scholar for some types of things as well. In terms of other podcasts, I must say I'm a huge fan of uh, the IM, IHMC's podcast called STEM Talk, which goes into lots of scientific detail about exercise, strength training, sleep. Um, and then there's also a Nourish, Balance, Thrive podcast, which is fascinating for lots of different things. Um, and they, 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 they ask lots of questions to researchers who run uh, and cycle and do lots of other um, exercises while still maintaining a scientific protocol uh, profile. Um, but, yeah, thank you very much, David. It's great to, great to be on. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks, Chris. Well, uh, thanks for coming on. And hopefully I'll see you at the next beer a or Beer Lovers or... Christmas party. Oh, what a legend. What a legend. Oh. Um, he knows his stuff, doesn't he? Oh, so, well, I, I first, I first um, saw Chris give a talk at Love Trails maybe two years ago. And then 
at Project Awesome, they have this thing called spoken word where um, they'll, or unspoken word, one spoken word, one's called unspoken word. And so this is, is where instead of having their fitness, they meet up every now and then and people would then give talks about certain things and the other one, they, perf they perform musical instruments or sing and stuff. And so he gave, he gave a talk of that one. And the reaction of the crowd in both of those was just so, so different to any other speaker because normally you're used to people telling their story and it's quite rare to actually just see an entire audience sit back and just go, oh, wow, oh, my God, what the <laughs> – and, like, oh, I need and, – and so many questions. And, how, I mean, how often do you – do you get to hear information you, that is genuinely insightful, but also genuinely new? Like you, you just can't find this out there unless you really go into heavy research. Just amazing. No, no, it's true, isn't it? It is true. Like you, it's wonderful when you sit there and you're learning stuff like completely fresh. Like it's because they actually, you, you wouldn't think this would happen that much in in kind of this sort of field that you're mm. you're ever sitting somewhere because everything bleeds into everything else doesn't it all kind mm. of knowledge you know there's all it, everyone kind of knows a little bit about something um but actually that whole that whole area is an i suppose i suppose it's the complexity of it as well um and actually being able to find someone who puts it into into words and discuss it. It's one of those areas that it's amazing actually we, ha we haven't discussed it, but then I suppose it's one of those areas like gut health. Like we've never had someone on about gut health, even though we've tried. Yeah. Um, because there's no one who's really doing a job of explaining gut health um, in, in, in the right kind of way that it, you know, kind of people, you kind of know a bit about it and you kind of know some stuff about it, but there's no. And also no one's applying it to running. No, no one's. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And, and that's what's quite interesting about ultras is that we almost feel as if ultra running, it's all been done before. You know, everyone's everyone's done the MDS for 30 years. But the difference between where we were now and even 10 years ago in terms of what what is the norm and what people are uh, attempting. And actually, it takes a long time for a sport and an industry to grow to the, the scale that actually that they can do scientific studies because they've got enough people in it, but also that actually it's of interest or of use to... Yeah, I mean, actually, what you said about ultras is true. I mean, like, the, you know, I mean, ultras are, have never been more popular. But, you know, even sort of 10 years ago, like the number of people, the number of people means it wasn't, you know, scientifically interesting to mm. even focus on that. You know, there was a few people doing stuff. But now, yeah, like you say, it's going gonna, it's gonna to take... Um, uh, you know, 10, 20 years to catch up. Well, we don't know whether ultras are, are good for our bodies or not, really. Um, yeah. yeah. Because we don't, because we just, we not enough people doing it for long enough. Um, the only people doing it for, 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 you know, years and years are people who may be doing, you know, one ultra a year or something or, or a few ultras a year when the case of, you know, you think about, you know, the biggest ultra in the world in terms of mm. popularity, which is um, uh, Comrades. Or, or you know, they're in a kind of elite group of people who have who have been doing it for years and years, and would sit outside the sort of the the range of norm for for, for the rest of the population. It's the first but, time you've got this whole gamut of uh, you know a, a sort of a, a, a wide enough range of population doing those things for you to mm. be able to actually have something that is statistically significant.
And, and what seems to be really different now, because we've had people who've gone to the South Pole and you know tried to go up Everest, and that isn't new. But what what does seem to be genuinely new, and, and probably has been happening longer in maybe the adventure racing community, is these against the clock races that are over several days, where like the popularity and growth of things like the Spine and yeah. even like the Barkley Marathons still quite short but it, it does seem to be only relatively recently that it's not just how many miles have i done over the course of a week or over you know a month it's i'm i'm limiting my sleep while i'm doing these things yeah and you're bringing I'm, yeah you're bringing all the factors of um human endurance existence um mm. uh, conditioning environment into play uh, and 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 the other because the other thing is that that what that that makes really interesting is the fact that when it used to be about speed and it used to be about distance and you know it it, it was almost quite you know there were, there were there were a lot of factors that could have affected it like weather things like that but then when mm. you start bringing in those other things you're bringing in a lot of factors where there is a huge amount of variance and variation where you can you know you can start doing stuff that. I don't know whether you can do start start doing stuff pioneering and, and things like that because we you know it, it, I suppose it's the first time they're exploring um, you know uh, whether there are different sleep strategies or whether there's mm. different you know um, uh, uh, supplements you can take to give you more uh, uh, awareness or something when you're when you're when you're you know, competing over those kind of distances and in those conditions. But it just feels like you're adding more variables into it, which also makes it much more interesting and exciting for the kind of strategies you can get coming out of it. Yeah, and and people are my my main worry because I've had a few people who've said they think you should only really do one like absolutely crazy race a year because it just takes you into a hole and not physically but like you just that whole draining you of everything. Oh yeah. And so there, there are people like John Kelly now where you know he did the Pennine Way FKT, but then he did the the rounds where he went from you know all three rounds back to back with cycling in between, and it, it does seem at the moment with races not happening that people are taking on more and more ridiculous challenges because at least with a race you're limited by what the race organizer puts on, but also people want to be in competition with with good races so yeah, yeah utmp's utmb is bloody hard but actually most people aren't going and doing something like the pennine way and then like the three rounds within a month of each other <laughs> because you you'd be doing a hundred miler or you'd be doing the uk champs or you'd be yeah. doing something that actually everyone else is doing which limits the distances that that's going to be and so we're in this stage now where we, we just don't know what impact something that big has on you and how long it probably takes to recover. And, you know, PTSD is becoming more and more popular as um, people are finding PTSD from more and more parts Triggers. of our life. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. And so could it be that we actually, that what, you know, we don't fully understand what our, our brain goes through in these crazy intense experiences and, and how it recovers and how long it takes to recover. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a really good point. Really good point. Well, fascinating stuff. Yeah. Where? That's a really good one. I, I really I like I, it's one of those ones where it's almost like a um like a landmark 
uh, episode that we're going to refer back to lots and lots. Mm, yeah, absolutely, and hundred percent. And and I almost want to apologise to the podcast because I was meant to get Chris on. We've been talking about it for the last two you've years. You've denied. Because you've denied our listeners <laughs> all that time because you couldn't be bothered. Well, it's because he's a buddy that I, I, he's not, I've not been pursuing him in the same way that I would, where I've got the email list and I go, and it's just been a, hey, do you want to come on? Yeah. And then we just forget about it. So it's just taken this long for us to actually remember, both remember that we're going to be doing this. Um, but if you've liked this episode, we've not really had anyone talk about this area before. Matt Fitzgerald was really good. He talked a lot about the science training and um, nutrition as well. Um, Renee McGregor, if you want to get technical, she's she's been fantastic twice now. One of them looking at um, nutrition and how to approach that, but also talking about the things like whether you should have carbs and keto, um, and also how to train as a female in connection with your menstruation cycle. Um, yeah, anyone else who, who's been good? Think, those were those were the ones that I would put in that category of. Uh, I suppose um, if you're going to go for one of those episodes where there's not much talking because the other person's doing a lot of the talking, <laughs> then Ben Greenfield would be the obvious choice there. <laughs> yeah, 100%. And then Dr. Andrew Jones as well. Who, oh, yes, of course. He was physiologist to Paul Radcliffe and also to the Nike Sub 2 project and the uh, the, the, the scientist that Be popularised Beetroot, yeah, indeed. That's a really, and he's just a cool guy as well. He's fun. Um, well, thanks for listening, guys. If you've liked this episode, then please do um, leave a review for us and uh, subscribe. That does help us get the attention of good speakers and get better guests on in the future. And if you want a guest in particular, then email me, david at badboyrunning.com. And if you want merch, you could go to our new site. Well, it's not a new site. I've just moved the site. So it's store.badboyrunning.com. Uh, I don't know whether by the time this comes out, we'll have got the new merch out. But um, one of the things that uh, we definitely are having is we've, uh, because COVID um, and the safety of our uh, listeners is of utmost importance, um, we're about to launch our range of face masks. Are we? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I had no idea. <laughs> and um, any feedback or any suggestions, any stories you'd like to share, letters at badboyrunning.com. And if you want to ask questions to future guests, then follow us on Instagram. We post in advance and you can put your questions directly to them, um, as we did today with Chris. Um, if you heard us say things that made no sense to you, listen to the A to Z of, of Bad Boy Running. It's three episodes. It's really long, but it's very funny, and it will get you into the mindset of what the group's all about. So um, thanks for listening, guys, and we'll speak to you next time. See you later. Bye-bye. 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 I must admit I was a clone to be messing around but that doesn't mean that you have to leave town come back yes and give me one more try cause a love like this should I never ever die come back fuck you buddy <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>